0: Service today, we have been captured by glorious aspects of God in the songs, and we've been able to respond with joyful praise. Doran just poured out our hearts before God, sharing desires that we believe line up with God's will through his prayer. And now we come to hear the voice of God speaking to us this morning. Would we all rise as we read the word? Reading from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, going to the end of the chapter. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, To you who are far off in peace, to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Don't attend church. Be the church. This week you're going to get a letter from Pastor Levering and the elders which updates the church on our refocusing efforts as we look at the vision of our church and we, we crystallize that. Now, as we move forward and And buy into this vision. This vision is going to impact the ministries. Some ministries will be added. Some might be dropped. Many will be reinvigorated. But what we need to know is the church is not about ministries. It's not about programs. The church is not an organization. The church is the people. The church is us. And we need to keep in our minds first and foremost through this process that God has called us to be the church and not to do the church. So over the next four weeks, I want to be looking at what does it mean to be the church of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Our Father, this is your word. It is so clear. It is so uplifting. It is so inspiring. We pray that through your spirit, you will draw us as individuals and ultimately draw us together as a church to capture what you want us to be. And then, by your spirit, you will form us together as one to your glory. That the world might know that Jesus Christ is Savior and He is Lord. In Christ we pray, Amen. God has called us to be the church, but what does that mean? The church is called many things in the scriptures. It's called the bride of Christ. It's called the body of Christ. It's called the fellowship of believers. It's called group of those who are a new citizenship together. We are called the household of God. We are called a holy priesthood. And we are called the dwelling place of God. That is who we are to be. And Ephesians begins to break down just some of these we want to look at Ephesians chapter 2, but I, I want to begin in Ephesians chapter 3, just looking at one verse, verse 10. And after Paul has talked about being given the gospel, a mystery that was hidden, and he speaks of the glory of the gospel and that he was given the privilege to carry that gospel throughout the world, he says this, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of god might be made might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places so here god's call to the church we are to manifest the wisdom of god what's interesting is he doesn't say to the world though we need to manifest the wisdom of God to the world but he says to rulers and authorities in heavenly places he's talking about the angelic realm that the church shows the angelic realm god's wisdom so what what's he mean by this well the angels have been looking in at god's work from the dawn of history And so they watched God create the world. The glory and the beauty and the splendor and the power of God was displayed. Job tells us that they sang and they rejoiced as they saw God's creation. We can only imagine the crushing heartbreak they had as they saw humanity turn against God push him away to go their own way to actually unseat God and place them at the center of their lives. And they saw that that sin brought brokenness and disease and famine and wars and death. They saw the hurt within humanity that God loved But they saw the trampling on the glory of God. I'm sure as they looked in, they were helpless and hopeless. What could God do? I mean, God loves us. His heart is broken as he sees what we did to our world. But they also know that God is just. That God is a judge. God is holy. And God cannot allow this type of sin to go unchallenged and unjudged. Otherwise, God himself is not just. But if God rained down his justice on all humanity, then his love would be questioned. And so they looked and saw a dilemma that was unresolvable but it wasn't unresolvable to God the Father. His plan was to send His Son into this world to carry our sin upon Himself as He went to the cross and that God in the fullness of His wrath out of His tremendous sense of justice poured down His judgment that we deserved upon Jesus Christ Himself. And so we saw that God was both loving, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. So out of his love, he found the way to save us, to bring us to himself, and to be just at the same time by paying the price himself. And I believe when the angelic realm saw that, they beheld the wisdom of God. And they saw that not only were people brought back to him, but the gospel itself became the the center of their transformation, where people would begin to turn from their sin, be drawn back to God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and have their lives gradually transformed, become the people that God created them to be, those made in the image of God. And he gave to the hopeless a hope of eternity that no matter how bad things are here, now or tomorrow, when Jesus Christ returns because of the cross, he is going to make all things new, fix everything that is broken in this world. That is the wisdom of God. And Jesus Christ has called his church to manifest that wisdom to the world. We do it by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with our voices. We explain to people who are lost that there is a way back to God And they don't have to scratch and claw to get back to him. Because Jesus Christ has done the work for them. The gospel has the message that they can become the type of people that they know inside. That they desire to be. That they know who they should be. Lining up. With the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's a possibility to move on that journey because of the cross. And that we can have our eyes fixed on the ultimate hope when we endure the pain today. That we will be with God. That he will make all things new. But we also manifest the wisdom of God by who we are when we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we are the church that Christ has called us to be, we will be displaying the wisdom of God. Uh, Tim Chester put it this way. The Christian community demonstrates the effectiveness of the gospel. We are the living proof that the gospel is not an empty word, but a powerful word that takes men and women who are lovers themselves and transforms them by grace through the Spirit into people who love God and others. We are the living proof that the death of Jesus was not just a vain expression of God's love, but an effective death that achieved the salvation of a people who now love one another sincerely from a pure heart. That's the wisdom of God displayed in the church when we are the church that God wants us to be. The angelic realm will witness the wisdom of God as we live this out, but our world will too. They desperately need the church to be the church, to see the church manifest, be a living manifesto of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Lennon, about 50 years ago, wrote a song that's still very popular today. And the words go like this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. That song continues to resonate today because in our hearts we desire the world to be one. We do not want to see war. We do not want to see hostility. We want to see people come together in peace, respect one another, be tolerant toward one another even if we disagree. It's in our hearts. John Lennon sang this over 50 years ago. It's still in our hearts, but we are no closer to it, even though it resonates in us. As we look around in the world today, we see more wars than ever. Our countries on three fronts in one way or another of war today. People are as brutal as ever. Yes, religion divides, but the nations who do not have religion have been more brutal, the greater persecutions than those with religion. The world is not coming together as one, but Jesus Christ says the church is to be that one, to show the wisdom of God that it is possible to bring people together to break down the hostility. In fact, Christianity is the only thing that can explain why our hearts long for unity, why they need love and they need to give love. And that's because that unity is at the very essence and center of our God. God. Our God is one God, united, yet in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. His true essence is three who are one, a perfect unity. Who have eternally loved each other, who champion each other, who glorify each other. Who seek to do the others' purposes. That's a unity in the very God. And that's why our human hearts say, yes, this world should have unity. And it seems as though the value of unity that John Lennon sings of actually comes from Christianity itself. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity talks about the hostility that was among different ethnic groups and nationalities in the cities. For the first time as the Roman Empire grew, people from different nations came to live together in large cities. He speaks about one city in particular, Antioch, the city where Christians were first called Christians, the city from which the gospel went out to the Gentiles through Paul and Barnabas. That city was the... Divided by walls within to keep the various ethnic groups and nationalities separate so there would not, the hostility would not overflow among them. And it's Christianity, he says, that broke into that and changed the way people saw division and unity. And then he goes on, And I think in his words, we can see that Christianity is the only power to break down those walls. For he says in his book that there were three major features for why Christianity grew so quickly in the first century. The first was the way Christians endured persecution. Not with hatred, but with love. Something supernatural was happening. And it was the way the Christians entered into the households and cared for the sick who were dying from plagues while their own families would run away. Christians entered in at the very possible sacrifice of their lives to care for them. And the third thing was Christianity brought together the people from different races and nationalities where the barriers and hostility were taken away and one body was formed, the church. We are more divided. I think our world is more divided, and the United States is more divided than at least since the Civil War. Having the desire doesn't mean it takes place. And certainly in the first century, the divisions were just as great. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, he speaks about the division between Jewish people and Gentiles. And uh, in his commentary on Ephesians, Kent Hughes describes the division that's taking place. And he says, A study of the history of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions, none of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalism, our iron curtains, are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jew and Gentiles in Bible times. The Jews believed the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. A common motto was the best of the serpents crushed, the best of the Gentiles kill. It was not lawful to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth. That would bring another heathen into the world. The Gentiles, even apart from their animosity for the Jews, had their own parochial hatred for anyone not like them. Plato said that the barbarians, any non-Greeks, were his enemies by nature, The Roman Lucius confirmed this in his day, saying, the Greeks wage a truthless war against people of other races, against barbarians. And of course, this was true of the imperialistic Romans. The collision of Jew and Gentile exclusiveness was monumental. The Gentiles were dogs in Jewish parlance, and the Jews were homicidal enemies of the human race in Gentile terms. No one could imagine bringing these two groups together. But we read in Ephesians, the Gentiles were very, very far away. Verse 1, it says, and you, speaking to the Gentiles, and you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the Gentiles were without hope They were followers of the prince of darkness himself. Yet, we read, we continue. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the Gentiles who were so far off, so lost, and now he begins to say us, realizing the Jewish people were just as lost, so far away, and yet God, being rich in his love and mercy, brought us, the Jews and the Gentiles, to himself. Ephesians continues, though, and describes the hopelessness of Jew and Gentile coming together. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made of flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The Gentiles had no hope with God, They had no hope of ever breaking down the hostility between Jew and Gentile. We could say the same for the Jewish people. They could never imagine accepting the dogs. In fact, when Cornelius, representing the first Gentiles coming to Jesus Christ, he became a Christian Peter had an extremely difficult time accepting it, and the others had to have supernatural proof that God would accept the Gentiles. That type of hostility is broken down, as we read in chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, the cross of Jesus Christ didn't only bring us peace with God, it brought peace among disparate people, people hostile to one another. It broke down the dividing wall. Now, the dividing wall is a reference to a wall in the temple. A barrier that kept the Gentiles from the temple proper. There was that wall. They they could come into the temple area, even if they wanted to believe in the same God as the Jewish people, they could not enter into the the temple proper. Josephus that early his, Jewish historian said no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary in enclosure anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death Josephus is saying if a non-Jew crosses that barrier we will kill him but he's, he's to blame Because he knows he shouldn't dare to cross that barrier. And what does Ephesians say? That barrier is broken down. It's destroyed. Jew and Gentile come together in the temple to worship God. So God makes the two one but he goes on to describe what this new people is and he's going to say three things he's going to say we're fellow citizens we are members of God's household and we are a dwelling place of God this is what he's called us to first chapter 2 verse 17 And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. Far off the Gentile near the Jew. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens. What it's saying is there is a new nation where Our old identity of being part of Israel or part of Greece or part of Rome, part of Syria, they don't matter compared to who you are in Jesus Christ. He is our new identity. He makes us one. Christ created a higher citizenship. Many people are still loyal to the, our nationalities. We enjoy celebrating them. We enjoy being with people, the same nationalities, ethnic groups. But there's something even greater, much greater, and is that that is our union in Jesus Christ. And the wisdom of God is shown when people of all races. All nationalities, no matter what the history has been between them or is now, are broken down and we come together as one. This bond is to be an incredible, phenomenal, tight bond. In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians about the Gentile churches in Macedonia in their care for the Jewish people. Remember the hostility that went on before Christ. This is what happens after Christ. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Okay, the churches in Macedonia, Gentile, they hear about the famine in Jerusalem. Now, they hardly have anything themselves, so Paul doesn't dare ask them to help out, They don't have anything. But instead, they come to Paul, and out of their poverty, they gave an abundance. And Paul says, they had to beg me to accept it. The dividing wall of hostility is broken down. There's a love that transcends all groups in Jesus Christ. Says we are members of God's household. You know what that says? We're the family of God. Our relationship with one another should be thicker than blood because we are united under one Father, God Himself. We are bound together by one Lord jesus christ we are moved and drawn together by one spirit the holy spirit we are one household and when we realize we're one household we cannot help but look out for one another care for one another look at it this way i am a sinner I have rebelled against God. I have pushed God away. Uh, year after year after year in my life, there in fact, there was a time where I consciously rejected God and said, go away for, a couple, for four years. Uh, my brother had become a Christian when I was a freshman in college. I went to some, I had grown up in church, but I went to some Bible studies with him, a church with him, and I thought, boy, this is, this is real. There's something special here. You know, I, I see God work in his life. So I went to, and I prayed to God and I said, God, I know you're real. I know this is real. But I've had been too much fun in college and I don't want you to butt in. So tap me on the shoulder in four years or so. And I lived just the way I wanted to live, not caring about God. But imagine... God brings me to Jesus Christ. He brings me into his household. And me, in the filth of my mire, of my sin, I come into this household, and God the Father rushes to me, embraces me, cleans me up, brings me into this banquet table. And I am so excited, so privileged, so happy to be with God that he, by his grace, would accept me but then i see some other people coming in and they're unkempt and they're dirty and they smell i don't really want to have much to do with them but they continue to come in and i see people who've irritated me in the past i see people who've been enemies of me in the past and i start to draw away from them and yet i see the father rush over to them embrace them clean them up and bring them to the same banquet table as me. What, how do I now look at them? But through the eyes of God, through the grace of Christ, to accept them as one. When we all have peace with God, the closer we get to God, the more at peace we are with each other. The closer we get to the heart of God, we feel the heart of God for each other. We are God's household. Edmund Clowney said this, Christian witness that is limited to private religious experience cannot challenge secularism. Christians in community must again show the world, not family values, but the bond of the love of Christ. Increasingly, the ordered fellowship of the church becomes the sign of grace for the warring factions of a disordered world. Only as the church binds together those whom selfishness and hate have cut apart will its message be heard and its ministry of hope to the friendless be received. The need of the secular world is greatest, at the very points where the criticism of the church is most intense. The world needs to see us as one, sacrificially loving each other. And Ephesians continues, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, it's, it's fantastic that we are a, a holy nation, part of one another. It's even more special that we are the family of God, sons and daughters of our Creator. But he goes even further. We are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God. You know, there's two words for temple. One speaks of the temple, the holy place, the holy of holies, the whole temple area where the brazen altar is and the, the laver. There's another word for temple that speaks of the inner sanctuary that we know as the holy of holies, the place Is so holy, the very presence of God dwelt there. Only one person, the high priest, one day a year, after being thoroughly cleansed of his sin, could enter into that place because God's presence was there. That's where he dwelt. That's the word Paul uses here. We are the holy of holies of God. The Spirit of God has to live at Westgate Church and in us with each other. You know, a little shy of 10 years ago, we were struggling as a church, and we brought in an outside consulting group that gave a number of recommendations, a number of assessments. One of those assessments was the Holy Spirit is not at Westgate Church. It was hard to hear, but important to hear. And I I thought about that, and I've actually spoken to a few people who were uh, at Westgate at the time, saying, what do you think they saw at Westgate to make that proclamation? And unanimously, it was the way we were relating to one another, the hostility that was between various groups in the church, in our hearts, the gossip that went on among us. You see, because the Holy Spirit brings unity, it brings love. And we need to thank God for metanoists hearing that with us. So that we could get back on the right track. And I think we've come very, very far. Uh, We've been much more faithful in bringing reconciliation where there's stress and hardship. Bringing love, welcoming others. But that's the spirit of God has to be here. When he's here, that's what happens. Jesus prayed... John 17, he said, Father, may they, and he's talking about his church, may they be one so that the world may know you sent me. It is the unity. It's what the Spirit creates. There's one Spirit, there's one body. How else, though, will we see, will we know the Holy Spirit's at Westgate? And We believe it's be the Holy Spirit's main work is to make Jesus Christ real to us. And so we'd say, certainly, Christ, his gospel, needs to be preached, needs to be central, needs to be taught throughout the church in every venue. Our worship needs to be gospel-centered as it is, highlighting Jesus Christ, highlighting that gospel, and what that gospel is doing in our lives. We need godly leadership. The first question we need to ask as elders is what does God want us to do? And we need to always keep going back to that. And when we go through this visioning process and we start to implement the things we do, we must first ask not what do I want, but what does God want for Westgate? What does he want us to be and to accomplish We need to put our sides apart, ourselves apart. And a spirit-filled church is one where the people are abiding in Jesus Christ. They are living out of the gospel itself as the resource for God's transformation. We will see lives transformed more and more into the character of Jesus Christ when the Spirit of God is there and the Spirit will become more palpable. It's been exciting to for me to personally hear of a couple people who've come into this church and have said, on their own, the Holy Spirit's here. He's got to be here because we are the dwelling place of God. Philip Reichen writes this, To summarize, what God wants the church to be and to do turns out to be exactly what the world needs. To a relativistic culture skeptical of meaning, the church preaches truth in the eternal word of God. To the narcissistic culture alienated by sin, the church issues an invitation to worship God, to fellowship, in deep relationship. And this is precisely what a post-Christian culture culture needs. They need a church that stands out as truly Christian. May God, through these months ahead, make us more and more the church he calls us to be. Our Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word that gives us such a beautiful picture of who we are. I pray that that these words will resonate in our hearts week after week. Each time we come to Westgate Church, we say we didn't come to attend, we came to be the church. We leave here, not leaving attendance of the church, but leaving as the church of Jesus Christ, entering into a world that needs the church to be the church. May the gospel infuse us May your spirit empower us to be the church. To the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Amen.